The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the policy and litigation team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Dwayne Wright, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering government healthcare policy. So for our topic today, the Inflation Reduction Act, specifically the drug pricing provisions, and how the new law will impact costs for employers, commercial payers, and employees. As you know from our previous podcast, we've spent considerable time looking at how the IRA will impact life cycle management for drug companies. For example, how will the law impact a company's decision to pursue new indications for existing drugs, given the threat uh, and timing of price cuts? We've had a discussion with the executive director of the Association for Accessible Medicines about the challenges and opportunities for generic and biosimilar competitors. Now we'd like to discuss how the drug pricing provisions of the IRA could impact employers and the commercial market. Keep in mind, the prices that Medicare negotiates with drug companies will be available for Medicare beneficiaries. So should employers brace for higher costs as a result of the law? Or will there be some spillover effects that benefit the 175 million people with employer or non-group coverage? I think the answer to both of those questions is maybe. But since it's 2023 and these prices won't become effective until 2026, let's have some fun talking about it. And today I'm lucky to have Jeff Levenshurst, an assistant professor at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and population health leader in the health management practice at WTW. Jeff has an MBA from Columbia Business School and a BA and MD from Boston University and the School of Medicine. So Jeff, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Thanks very much, Dwayne. Happy to be here. So Jeff, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because as much as we talk about the impact to drug companies, there are or that could be subject to price cuts. We don't often talk about some of the downstream effects of the law, specifically with the commercial market and employers. But before we do that, can you tell us about your work at Harvard, uh, the Harvard School of Public Health and WTW? Sure, um, thanks very much. So at the Harvard School of Public Health, I teach coursework around managing healthcare costs, certainly a relevant topic, as well as provider payment. And at WTW, the firm that was known as well as Towers Watson in the past, I'm the population health leader. So I, I'm giving advice to large employers about what to do about health care and uh, the health investment in their employees. Previously, I worked as a physician leader in provider organizations and a health plan, and I'm a primary care doctor by training. And so what are you hearing from employers now about drug benefits? 
Well, you know, I mean, employers are struck by the fact that uh, that we have the highest rate of medical inflation um, really in the last decade um, this year. And there's good reason to believe that's going to continue for um, the next three or four years, at least. And given that backdrop, employers are mainly thinking about costs and uh, very specifically uh, the two things that are top of mind um, for employers that sponsor health insurance right now are the cost of the newer anti-obesity drugs, which, uh, you know, which, which are very high and uh, they're wonderful drugs, but, uh, um, but they represent as much as 10% of total outpatient pharmacy spending now, uh, and much of, the, much of that is new. And the other is, uh, is concern about uh, of the very expensive gene therapies that are becoming available. You know, joy that there are now, you know, insight um, cures for terrible diseases like sickle cell disease and hemophilia and terror about what the possibility of a two or $3 million bill could mean to a self-insured employer. So let's uh, have a, uh, take a foundational look at this topic and this issue. Uh, give us uh, an elevator speech uh, about what formularies are, number one, and then two, how are they created for employer and commercial plans? Sure. Well, one thing to understand first is about is almost 90% of the drugs prescribed to uh, members of health plans are generic. However, 80% of the total cost is actually in brand name drugs. So formularies are really all about, uh, all about brand name drugs. So pharmacy benefit managers, which are hired by uh, employers um, to, to manage uh, the pharmacy benefit, actually, uh, actually design and craft formularies with an eye to making meds in each class available and driving volume to the pharmaceutical company that's willing to accept a lower net price for a drug that works well. Um, so concessions on price can either be given as rebates or discounts. Um, and in, in the brand name drug space, a lot of those concessions are, are made in, uh, in rebates. So we often think about um, the gross price of a drug, which is easy, easy to find, and then the net price of a drug, which is what price the uh, insurance plan and its members are paying after any discounts and after any rebates. So if a if if a drug company wants its drug to be um, on a formulary, it's it's generally willing, and there are competing drugs that could be on instead. A drug company is willing to give a give a, a larger effective discount um, to to get more volume. And so, who's in control of this process? Do employers themselves have a large role here in terms of dictating which drugs are included or not included? And is there a negotiation process uh, that's involved? You know, most employers don't have their own pharmacy and therapeutics committee. They don't hire pharmacists. They don't hire doctors to do this. They actually hire a pharmacy benefit manager and they trust the pharmacy benefit manager to uh, to offer a, offer a formulary. There's a tendency for PBMs uh, to offer a few different formularies, one that might be uh, you know, one that might be more restrictive and uh, therefore lead to lower costs, but more members being forced to switch drugs, one that's less restrictive, which will have higher costs, but more members will be happy because there won't be a demand for them to switch from a drug they're accustomed to, to potentially, you know, a, dif a different drug. Um, 
there are some jumbo employers that do have their own formularies, but for the most part, um, employers will um, accept the formulary that accept one of the available formularies for, for their PBM. Another consideration is that uh, the formularies do, de do determine what kinds of rebates employers will be able to get. So that if they're willing to have a, a more restrictive formulary, then, um, then the drugs that are on that might get more business than their competitors are probably discount discounted more heavily. So to the extent that an employer wants to say, well, I don't really want any patients to be forced to switch drugs um, and have, have any kind of uh, any kind of friction or abrasion, um, that employer will end up getting much less in the way of rebates. And I think as I look at this topic, you can see depending on the drug, some drugs have rebates that are a lot less than others uh, and, and the range uh, can, can vary. And this might be, the answer to this might be, well, it depends on the drug, but who has the leverage here when you're talking about drug manufacturers that want their, their drugs on the formularies, PBMs that want to get the rebates, there's that tension. How is that tension resolved and who has the leverage? Yeah, um, as you as you suggested, the answer is it depends. And if there's a drug that's pretty unique, it's the only drug of its class. It's really the only drug that accomplishes, uh, 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 you know, that that, that meets a uh, meets a real clinical need. Then the pharmaceutical company has has leverage, and the pharmaceutical company is likely to give few price concessions because an employer pretty much has has to have that on the formulary. Um, whereas if there is a drug that's part of a class where there are many available drugs, maybe even some that are already available generically, um, the uh, you know to to um, you know the at that point then the pharmacy benefit manager has substantially more leverage and can can seek you know, much, much higher price concessions. So I think it, it all depends on really how much, how much value is created by the drug and how much, you know, unique and competitively differentiated value is, is created by the drug and drugs that are, you know, drugs that create more value than the pharmaceutical company has substantially more leverage. And so if I'm an employer and I've got this formulary uh, working with a PBM, how, often can I expect conversations between PBMs and manufacturers to occur in terms of what the prices are going to be, what the rebates are? What does that look like? Well, most commercial formularies are technically, uh, you know, they're technically created once a year. Okay. But as a practical matter, there are always new drugs coming on the market. There's new information becoming available about drugs, and so there are there there are form there tend to be formulary changes somewhere between two and four times a year, depending upon, you know, de depending upon what you know, what, what, what is new? I imagine at this point that the pharmacy benefit managers and the pharmaceutical companies are maybe talking virtually all of the time, but, uh, but, but, but in general, um, you know, there is an attempt to be sure to not be changing formularies dramatically in the middle of the year, because that causes a lot more patient disruption. And so when we think about healthcare policy, uh, specifically looking at, well, if you, change reimbursement or coverage within one part of healthcare, it, it's going to impact another part of healthcare. And I, I know we'll get into this in a bit, and I think this is a good segue for what's coming up next. But when we look at some of these commercial formularies, 
are they influenced by what happens in the Medicare program, uh, or are these two distinct conversations? So, so it's a really good question. Um, so there are a lot of Medicare plans. So there are 800 Medicare Part D plans. There are 4,000 Medicare Advantage plans. About 90% of them have pharmacy benefits. Um, and similarly, there are, uh, you know, there are, you know, there are many, many PBMs, although there are three of them that represent over 80% of the total market. Um, the big PBMs almost universally have you know, or universally have both Medicare and commercial contracts. Um, I'm not at the negotiating table, so I can't tell you exactly how one impacts the other, but I can tell you that if a, uh, if a pharmacy benefit manager has a good relationship with one pharmaceutical company and is able to get good price concessions, they're probably going to be trying to do that on both the Medicare and the commercial side. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, one, one definitely does, uh, you know, have, have, have some impact on the other. Um, so that helps us tee up the, the, the big issue, which is how this is all going to impact, uh, how we'll see this impact from the IRA in the commercial markets. But before we, jump into some of these IRA effects, maybe another uh, opportunity just to develop a baseline understanding for our listeners. But what are we talking about with the IRA drug pricing negotiation provisions? How is it going to happen? What specifically is it? Yeah. So, so, so basically, um, the IRA prescribes very, very specifically how this negotiation works. Um, so um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which runs Medicare, chooses this year um, 10, 10 Medicare Part D drugs. It'll be, it'll, it'll be 15 next year, and then the year after that, they start looking at Medicare Part D and Part B. Part B is, is medicines that tend to be um, used in hospitals or in doctors' offices. Part D is medicines that people go to their local pharmacy to pick up. So, um, so the first thing is they've choose choose medications. That's that's done. The, the ten medications have been announced, and uh, and then um, uh, there is a process whereby uh, CMS, Center for Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, use um, goes uh, you uses a series of criteria to determine what it thinks is a fair market price for or fair market value for each of these ten drugs that they're going to negotiate with. Um, all 10 pharmaceutical companies impacted have agreed to this negotiation. And so CMS will on the, ba will on the basis of how much clinical value there is, how much research and development it took, how much of that was paid for by the government, um, you know, what, what are alternatives that could achieve the same uh, this, the same um, clinical benefit would cost? So the CMS is supposed to put supposed to put all of that together, and on that basis, they make a bid to the pharmaceutical company that's somewhere between uh, twenty five and sixty five percent lower than uh, lower than the existing cost. And uh, then the pharmaceutical company has a period of time to make a counteroffer and to uh, and to give justification about why they feel that the fair market price should be uh, higher than what CMS has to do. So this will all be going on for the next year. And uh, and if uh, if 
the pharmaceutical company and CMS can't come to an agreement, then there are pretty serious penalties for the for the pharma, pharmaceutical company. So I think that it's likely there will be agreements. And uh, those, the, those agreements will be announced in September of 2024, but then that price won't be in effect until January 1st of 2026. So it's a pretty long process. Um, it's pretty prescribed. It's not, uh, there's, there's not a lot of flexibility about how this, uh, how this should go. And it is mandatory that for the drugs that are, um, that are selected, the discounts will be, re- will be reasonably serious. Um, and uh, I mean, another big difference between these kind of negotiations and the negotiations that pharmacy benefit managers have with the pharmaceutical companies is that the results of these are pretty much entirely public. So we will, in September of 2024, not only know what um, the agreed upon Medicare price will be, and uh, it's very hard to f- figure out sometimes what the agreed upon PBM prices are, just because there's, there's a lot of uh, rebates and other, other things going back and forth. But we'll also know what, what the background is about why CMS chose that price and in what way the pharmaceutical company might have disagreed. So all all of that information becoming part of the public record will actually, uh, I believe, clearly have an influence on what the price is across the market, not just on Medicare. Yeah, on that point, there's going to be considerable transparency into how CMS got to this. And I think when we get there, if we get there, I think we'll all be looking at well, okay, we know you set the price, but how exactly did you get there? And I think we'll all be looking through that. But you know, a couple of things uh, you mentioned earlier that there's there could be some serious discounts. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the law provides pretty much a ceiling, and it does not provide a floor. In other words, there's a maximum fair price, but there's nothing that says CMS can't go well below that. Uh, and I think that is a fear that drug manufacturers, pharma, bio, they've all expressed over the past couple months. And so there's a bit of unpredictability there. Uh, and we will see how it plays out. CBO, when which is the Cong- Congressional Budget Office, uh, when they scored the proposal, they provided some additional clarity into their thinking in terms of how they got to a score and said, well, because... Medicare has such leverage, uh, they think the discounts are likely to be well below the maximum fair price. And we'll see if that plays out or not. Um, but also, to your, to your point about a rigid time frame, I think it's interesting that it's, it's very prescriptive. And I think that is more about, well, we don't know who the next president's going to be and, and what their views on this process or the law itself. So we're going to be very prescriptive. Uh, we're, I think, earlier drafts of the law said up to up to 10, up to 15, up to 20, and this this law is now very prescriptive. It is that specific number, and the discounts are this is your maximum fair price. So again, uh, you know, to, to some of your earlier comments, it's very rigid, and uh, I think people might have issue with this, but very transparent process, uh, though people might not like the process. Well, I think that, uh, you know, clearly um, when CMS is doing this negotiation, um, the IRA gives CMS some serious leverage. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so, so I understand that, uh, you know, I understand that pharma 
you know, pharma obviously is suing in at least six different courts uh, to try to to try to uh, try to stop this. Um, you know, the IRA also gave some real wins to the pharmaceutical companies. So uh, so getting rid of the donut hole, so being sure that people don't pay first dollar for their drugs in Medicare Part D, um, you know, after, you know, after a relatively small number of months, and also getting, you know, also putting a, a cap on how much people could at maximum spend out of pocket is going to actually decrease price sensitivity for a lot of drugs. So, I mean, you know, if you look at share prices of the pharmaceutical companies, they have done, they have done fine and they're not, they're not doing badly. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that uh, there are some blockbuster drugs where there's going to be substantially less margin going forward. And we'll probably talk about it, but I think that, you know, there are some incentives in this for pharmaceutical companies not to as um, vehemently protect, um, you know, some patent extensions and things. So yes, there are some losses for the pharmaceutical industry in this, but there also are some very substantial wins um, for the pharmaceutical industry. And, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, I, I actually, I, I don't just respect, but I am thrilled at the kind of, uh, the kind of, um, innovations and the kind of progress we've made through pharmaceuticals really, I mean, pharmaceutical companies are responsible for almost all of the really big medical advances that have come since I, since I've, since I've been on the scene. So, you know, making HIV a chronic disease, making hepatitis C treatable, even things like um, having over the counter drugs to treat ulcers. I mean, when I was in training, I saw people die of duodenal ulcers um, and, you know, nothing like that would happen now. So, you know, I'm happy for all this innovation. I think the pharmaceutical companies should be well, uh, re well rewarded. And, and I think that even with, uh, you know, with some, you know, with some decrease in margin that they'll see on some of these blockbuster drugs or some shorter, uh, shorter patent exclusivity, I actually am confident the pharmaceutical industry will actually do quite well. And some elements of the IRA will, in fact, give them more business. And I think, you know, how do you respond then to concerns of, well, this is going to mean less innovation moving forward? Uh, you know, one way to uh, think about it is, well, CBO has said, we do anticipate there'll be fewer drugs, uh, whether it's 10, 15, or 20. I think pharma has its own study that says possibly over 100. Uh, do you think that it's less, it's more about we won't see those drugs, or do you think we'll see some of these drugs uh, come onto the market a bit more slower because some of these drugs are indi additional indications of existing drugs, or maybe we'll see uh, a drug come on the market for that second indication instead of that first indication because of the clock. And right now the game is all about the clock when it starts and when those discounts are applied. Well, you know, Duane, a couple of thoughts. One is the Congressional Budget Office said that this would lead to one fewer drug in the first decade and 13 fewer new drugs in over over three decades. So, and just in perspective, that's, I, I don't know, they expect to have like 1,300 new drugs over, over, over three decades. Obviously, if the drug that didn't get developed was the drug that could cure you and you or me, we would be very disappointed by that. Um, but you know, also of all the new of the 38 or so new drugs that are uh, approved every year, 
a lot of them don't represent like quantum leaps. Some of them do, but a lot of them don't. Um, I think that, uh, I think again, there, there will be plenty of margin in the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, in some areas there'll be somewhat more margin just because of getting rid of, uh, of, of caps that we really needed to get rid of on, uh, are getting rid of very high expenses we really needed to get rid of for, uh, for, for, for some Medicare beneficiaries. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic. I think we'll continue. I think that pharmaceuticals will continue to be a, uh, a place where money invested um, wisely will, uh, you know, will have substantial returns. I also think that like we've seen some excellent reporting about pharmaceutical companies already, um, you know, delaying a potentially new, better drug to try to to try to get uh, you know to try to get longer exclusivity on that. There's been very good reporting on Gilead and uh, you know which which put a, which put uh, Discovy on pause um, um, so that they could um, you know sort of run the um, that's a uh, that's a drug used for HIV therapy and for PrEP for. Um, for uh, um, for preventing uh, HIV infection in people at high risk, and uh, you know, basically, there's a small advantage of a newer drug, um, Discovy, and uh, um, it's just a different salt of one of the two drugs in it. And they uh, they they sort of sat on it for you know at least half a decade, maybe longer, um, and you know that probably wasn't you know probably would would have been good if it came out sooner so i, I do I, I i don't think that this is a new problem that uh, the the inflation reduction act negotiation is going to create um you know if, if anything the fact that uh, this might encourage um pharmaceutical companies not to uh um, not to um, not to argue um, legal, legally quite as vociferously against the uh, against the end of exclusivity might actually you know make more drugs you know more really excellent drugs available to people um, you know people sooner. So right. I mean you know I, I I think we'll do okay in this, but again like you know it's it's going to be a long time before we can actually tell whether you know right. tell whether that's true. And to your earlier point, you know we've seen the industry come up with some pretty good innovation. Uh, but where Democrats would say, and which is why they passed the, the, the bill, which became law, uh, are they affordable? And so when we look back at what the IRA did, why are these prices or the, why will the negotiated prices only be available for Medicare and not uh, the commercial market? Why didn't Congress say everybody can have access to these negotiated prices? Uh, well, first of all, like, when Medicare was passed in the early '60s, there, there simply wasn't a drug benefit, and uh, and uh, obviously, since the 1960s, what drugs are able to do has just you know has just become so remarkable that it, you know any any kind of an insurance plan that doesn't have a drug benefit is clearly obsolete. So there was a big argument with. Medicare Part D about whether that would, whether Medicare would be allowed to negotiate prices, and in the end, uh, that is why Medicare Part D was pretty much supported by Republicans in the House and not supported by Democrats who you'd think would have wanted to uh, you know wanted to expand uh, you know wanted to expand uh, coverage. Um, it's been it's been a public policy sticking point actually you know since Medicare Part D started paying for prescriptions it's been a, a, a sticking point because Medicare pays for about a third of all of all of all pharmacy costs and you know if they're if they're paying for a third of all pharmacy costs why shouldn't they be negotiating 
So, um, you know, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the people who believes that believe that Medicare is a very large, uh, very large uh, um, purchaser of drugs should negotiate ultimately won the day. But, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry does very, very effective lobbying. They clearly did not want this to uh, apply to uh, apply to, uh, you know, to non-governmental payers. And I think that, uh, you know, wrapping up the Inflation Reduction Act was a very hard thing with an enormous number of moving pieces. And people who were thrilled to see Medicare negotiating prices were not willing to sacrifice that to uh, to insist that employer-sponsored health health insurance companies were were brought along. I think obviously purchasers would rather be it, rather you know be guaranteed lower prices than have to negotiate for them. But um, you know, as I've said, I'm I'm guardedly optimistic that we'll actually see some uh, you know some as you call them spillover effects, and that there will be some benefit for uh, employer-sponsored health insurance as well. But um, I think that I think that there's a there is um, you know there's a genuine um, reluctance to uh, to have the government step in, and many people deeply believe that the market should determine what prices are. And um, I think that the compromise of letting the government step in for the government's uh, spending was a, it was a good compromise to make two years ago. So when I think big picture, uh, whenever I have conversations about how to lower healthcare costs to change the tra trajectory of Medicare spending, I always come back to one central point, which is we should probably do something, but that money has to come from somewhere or somebody, some entity. In other words, taking away $1 in healthcare spending means Less for hospitals, doctors, insurance companies, et cetera, which is, which is why it's truly hard to tackle healthcare spending because Absolutely. you have a lot of uh, stakeholders out there. And I think there's this viewpoint that if you're making these significant cuts to drug prices for the Medicare population, those losses by drug companies have to be recouped somehow or some way. And it reminds me of a, a headline I saw the other day from a, a, an older article as the the bill was going through Congress, which is uh, the IRA means increased drug prices for commercial plans. And so wanted to dive in a bit on this uh, because we've heard from employer groups that have, have expressed concern and they expressed this concern during the debate over what was then Build Back Better and turned into the Inflation Reduction Act, that limiting negotiated prices to Medicare leaves the door open to cost shifting where these manufacturers, especially those that are impacted by these lower prices, will try to recoup these losses through higher prices in the commercial market. Is this a realistic scenario? I think that concern is clearly overstated. And, uh, and here's why. Pharmaceutical companies actually hire among the best economists around, the best pharmacoeconomists, to, to determine what the optimum price is. And the optimum, the optimum price is the one that gives them the most margin. And uh, if they set the price too low, then they're leaving money on the table. They're getting paid less than they could be paid. So they might have lower revenue than they should have. But if they set the price too high, it'll actually adversely impact utilization. Fewer people will use it. 
And at some point, you know, they've set it so high that they'll lose enough business that they'll actually make their margin worse, not better. So if the if you believe that the drug companies have been um, have have actually erred and they've they've not been maximizing shareholder value and they've not been setting these prices at the optimum so far and they've been setting them too low and therefore they could raise them and not adversely impact their utilization. Um, if you believe all of that, then you would be worried about this sort of cost shifting phenomena. But realistically, I think that the drug companies have been setting prices in a way that maximizes their margins as, you know, as their shareholders would want. And um, I don't, I don't think that making less money on a few blockbusters is something that gives them either more leverage or creates more demand in other markets that will allow them to increase their price without decreasing their, uh, their utilization. So I don't I don't think that the drug companies are in a position to uh, in a position to do this and uh, you know but I do I do think like in the in the you know in the political argument around this um, it is valuable for the drug companies to have people believe that they have the ability to uh, um, to to do, do this kind of cost shifting. But we have heard these stories and these arguments that especially when it comes to Medicare, if you uh, reduce Medicare payment for a service, uh, whether it's hospital services or, or something else, you know, pick a sector, that there is ultimately, it justifies higher costs elsewhere or increasing uh, prices elsewhere. Is, is there, are there examples where we've seen this type of cost shift? Sure, I'm really glad you brought this up. So in the in the 1980s and 1990s there was this phenomena that healthcare policy people called the cost shift hydraulic. And each time there was a Medicare bill to try to save some, you know, decrease the the deficit or save the federal government some money. So each time Medicare lowered its fee schedule, it seemed like uh commercial costs were going up. And you could you could sort of just superimpose them and it looked like, yes, there was cost shifting. When economists started looking at this into the later 1990s, into the 2000s, they actually found that this went away. And the difference is that in the 80s and early 90s, hospitals were largely being paid by based on their charge master, what they were billing. And, uh, and so if they could simply raise their prices and if they raise their prices, they would just get paid more. And, um, you know, starting, um, you know, starting in the 1990s and beyond, hospitals increasingly have been, pay, been paid on fee schedules. And, uh, and so if they want to raise their prices, they have to wait to the next time a contract is open to do it. So, they, so, so since then, it turns out that when Medicare lowers its um, price, its fee schedule, it actually saves money for, uh, for commercial providers. And it does it in two ways. One is that most fee schedules are in some way or other based on Medicare fee schedules. So if Medicare fee schedules are not going up as rapidly, it actually helps make other fee schedules not go up as rapidly. Um, the other, the other, uh, you know, the other thing is that when hospitals saw, you know, saw um, saw less Medicare um, revenue in their future, they actually um, they actually built fewer new buildings and things. So there was less capital expense, fewer but fewer bond payments due. And as a result, they didn't have to raise their rates as much. So again, I mean, I, I think that uh, there is a, there are a lot of unknowns here, but um, 
in general, uh, if the government as a payer lowers low, you know, lowers its price or doesn't raise its price as much as it otherwise might have, um, other parties can only raise their prices if they have the leverage to do it. And then you always have to ask yourself the question, well, did they have the leverage before? And if they yeah. had the leverage before, why didn't they raise their prices before? And so I'm, I am, I, I'm, I'm not a believer that that we will sound skeptical. Yeah. So then, is it possible then that uh, the reverse could be true here? Uh, when we think about the prices that are going to be set in Medicare, that there could be some spillover effect where we see uh, commercial market and employer markets some of those prices adopted by ado adopted in that area. I, I, uh, that, that's my, that's my feeling about it. I think that, uh, I think that we'll, we will see spillover effect. I, I we will see that, uh, um, that employer sponsored, um, cup, you know, pharmacy benefits will, will, um, will see benefit. I also want to say, I don't want people to think I'm too, too overly optimistic. This means that costs won't rise as much as they otherwise would rise. I don't think that this means that, uh, that, you know, that we will see a dramatic decrease in, 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 in pharmacy costs. So just to sort of put it in perspective, these drugs represent about 15 and a half percent of uh, commercial drug spending, these 10 drugs alone. So obviously if, if, if they cost less, that that's going to matter in a material way. Um, so, uh, but, but again, I mean, I, I uh, yeah I, I I believe that when these go down in price for uh, for Medicare they will go down in price for uh, you know for other payers as well. And so going back to an earlier point you made uh, in the transparency angle of all of this, we know that Medicare is going to publish the price in September 2024. A couple months later, there'll be what we think will be detailed justification for that price uh, remains to be seen how detailed it will be. Sure. But, uh, you know, we'll have a sense of, okay, how did you get to from A, which is where we are now, to Z, uh, which is the, the price we'll, we'll see next year. Do you think all of that information is going to be helpful for uh, the commercial markets to, uh, to I guess, accelerate or be a catalyst for this spillover effect? Or is this kind of information already out there already, but because it's coming from the government, a huge payer as part of this process, that it might carry more weight? Yeah. Well, there are some there are some parties out there that are already doing this kind of research. Uh, the Institute for Clinical Effectiveness Research, ICER, is probably the the preeminent one doing this. Um, they put out a cost effective price for many new drugs, and uh, and even though the actual prices are often higher than what they say is the cost effective price. I actually think these are looked at, and I think to some extent these might actually create a bound that, that doesn't allow uh, doesn't allow prices that are you know doesn't allow prices that are even higher. So uh, so so yes, there's already some information out there. I think that this will, uh, as you said, be influential because this is from a very large purchaser. It'll uh, be a variety of different um, di different pieces of data, including some that ICER doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily consider, 
And um, yeah, I think that these will have influence on, on prices outside of Medicare. And then, then the question is, okay, how exactly will I, as a, uh, an individual not in Medicare benefit, um, is, is it through lower premiums? Is it through uh, lower cost sharing? How, how does this work for, for me? Because I think within the Medicare population, it may depend on whether you have coinsurance, and that would be pretty significant, though. You layer on top of the Part D redesign. Like there's there's a lot going on there. We don't have that in the commercial market. Right. So how would I, as an employee, uh, benefit, especially when you think about the fact that these prices aren't going to be implemented until 2026? Yeah. So I guess the first thing is don't count on any don't count on any difference for the next two open enrollment cycles, right? I mean, yeah. this is, this is going to take a while, but uh, um, you know. In general, I think that, that that for many employers, what this does is it takes a little bit of pressure off of cost off of, of premium increases. Um, so you know, employers can um, employers can either use any savings to be sure that premiums don't go up more, or they can use any savings to decrease cost sharing. Decreasing cost sharing benefits people who have medical claims and therefore disproportionately benefits people who are sick um, decrease you know not increasing premiums is something that everybody sees I think for I think for many employers uh, you know they're working hard to be sure that their employees can afford to afford the premiums to buy insurance and I think that there'll be some priority to put things there but to some extent also money's fungible so you know, if, if there's something that doesn't go up as much as you expected, then, you know, it gives you more freedom to not make other difficult decisions, like, like increase the premium or like, you know, increase cost, cost shifting. But I, I go back to this conversation about what this means for innovation and, and uh, whether this is an interfering with the competition we have now. So when you look at the the way the law is set up, you have the maximum fair price. It's 25, at least 25 to 60% off of current prices. Think, let's think about generics and biosimilars for a second. And you know, one of the conversations we've had here is, well, as a biosimilar manufacturer or a generic manufacturer, I've started this process. You know, it's 2023, October 2023. I've started my process years ago in terms of uh going through the r d deciding where to go what to target going through the r d and i've probably thought okay i'm going to come at come on the market at x minus 10 percent, 15 percent. and now you have a scenario where that could be higher than what medicare says is the price for the drug and so i, I do wonder if there's going to be some kind of disincentive, at least initially, maybe, for some of these competitors to come onto the market. And I bring that up because one of the ways to lower costs for people is to have competition through generics and biosimilars. Is there any concern there that all these lower prices uh, would, would re hinder, reduce this competition, would result in higher prices, or is that a little far-fetched? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a couple of thoughts. One is that biosimilars are, you know, are are used very widely in the European market. They generally cost way on way less than 60% less than uh, less than the generic uh, I'm sorry less than the brand name man- manufactured by um, manufactured biologic drug and there's no shortage of competition to you know to to do those so I'm I, you know I think that uh, I mean I don't think that the opposition to this is coming from generic manufacturers or biosimilar manufacturers I think that uh, and there's a good reason for that um, what the IRA does is it actually potentially smooths the path to having less years of legal wrangling to put in, you know, to put uh, to put bring to market a biosimilar. And so I think that, you know, this this could get us more biosimilars more quickly. Um, and then, you know, what does this do 10 years out? Again, pretty, pretty speculative. But um, but it, it it seems like these you know it seems like there is going to continue to be a need for biosimilars and uh, you know and uh, and given the high fixed cost you know given the high fixed cost and low variable cost of drug manufacturing even of biologics I, I don't I think that uh, I think that we could we should expect that uh, you know that we will get lower prices and we will not see a uh, you know we will not see a loss of uh, competition in the biosimilar space. You, you hinted at uh, something like maybe um, less patent litigation, or you didn't say patent litigation, but less litigation potentially. And it's something we we talk about here as well. Is manufacturers have spent a lot of time and money preventing competition uh, through patent litigation. And I, I wonder if we're about to see a scenario where in select cases, uh, some of these manufacturers might be more willing to uh, encourage or at least be open to at least one competitor on the market because that by definition means uh, it does not qualify for a negotiation under the IRA. Now. The guidance, when you look at the, the final guidance, there are all these stipulations about what is uh, generic competition. And I think there are some questions as to whether CMS overstepped their bounds in terms of their interpretation of the law of what is generic and what is, I, I believe the term is marketed uh, generic. Um, but I, I do wonder if, if uh, we will see a bit of a sea change to a more welcoming environment by some of these brand manufacturers. Yeah, I think that I think that's the hope, and uh, you know, the, and I, I think that's the hope that uh, yeah. you know we'd like to see a biosimilar available when um, the when you know when the patent would allow it. We don't want to see it seven or ten years later. Right. So, so with all this talk, I, I have to go on to this subject in our final question because there's a huge debate now in Congress about what to do about the the sector that wasn't directly addressed in the IRA, and those are the pharmacy benefit managers. Um, and for many Democrats and even Republicans, it's a bipartisan issue. Uh, this seems to be the the another way to lower prices or at least provide uh, an avenue for employers employees 
uh, and others an avenue to some of these savings that we're seeing through re rebates. So beyond the IRA, what are policies in your mind that can be implemented to continue to drive down lower prices? Uh, and specifically within the PBM sector, are we looking at more transparency? Are we looking at policies targeting rebates, outcomes-based pricing? What, what do you think some of the next steps are that you think Congress can tackle? Yeah, well, I mean, clearly this is a place where there's an enormous amount of opacity. And, uh, and so to some extent, the answer about like, where can we, where, you know, wh where can we take money out of this system? Um, well, we know there's money in the system because we've seen this uh, gradual increase in the difference between gross price and net price. So, you know, so so there is there is money leaking out that's not going to the pharmaceutical companies, or there or it's going to them, but then they're paying it back to some other party. So, I think I think rules that would shine a light on that and make that more, uh, you know more transparent are probably a, an important first step they're not they're not sufficient but they are uh, you know they are an important first step um so i think sometimes sometimes people don't realize how destructive rebates are to the whole idea of insuring people for when they're sick so essentially if there's a drug that's very expensive but then there's a very high rebate to it um people who get prescribed that drug pay their cost sharing when sometimes people are in deductible they pay 100% sometimes they're in coinsurance they pay 20% but they they they're paying based on this marked up price and then there's a rebate that's returning a bunch of this to the to to the health plan um, but that rebate is probably being used to keep overall premiums down and so now you have a diabetic on three diabetes drugs who's spent $7000 out of pocket uh, again, the IRA, if they're on Medicare, that will that will make that less of a problem, not necessarily on commercial plans. So, so uh, I mean, I'm going around a long way in saying this, but but rebates are really problematic. They're essentially having the sick people subsidize the healthy people, which is exactly the opposite of what we want in health insurance. So, you know, I think the first step is probably shining a light on this. And the second step is probably to just get the prices to be lower. And uh, and the pharmacy benefit managers do some important things and, you know, be sure that they just get, you know, I'd rather see them get paid fees as opposed to getting paid, uh, you know, a, a piece of a rebate, um, because that leads to uh, that leads to a, set, a, a series of bad incentives. Um you know, I think that uh, there's been an effort, um, but it's honestly not gotten very far to make rebates at the point of sale. So then, then that would uh, that that would mean that the sick person who's getting the expensive drug, it's not really as expensive as it looks, would actually not have not have to overpay. That's not. I mean, that's that's a good idea, but it's 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 hard, it's hard to execute, and it's not been put forward in many places. And then, well, go ahead on that. Point. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the Trump administration tried to move forward with this type of proposal within the Medicare program. And I think if we saw, and this is probably just, and maybe it was an aha moment for a lot of people because when they try to do it within Medicare, their uh, costs uh, evaluation agency said, oh yeah, this is going to cost us, I think it was close to $100 billion over 10 years, 
because, well, those rebates are being used to lower prices for premiums. And so if you don't have that uh, valve, then premiums go up. Government pays 75%, close to 75% of the Part D premiums. So it ended up being a net loss for government, which I think as you're talking about this and, and shining a light on how this whole process works, it was a painful reminder that maybe we all don't know how the drug supply chain works in terms of where all this money is going. Right. No, and that's and and similarly, you know, em, employers are in a somewhat similar situation. That uh, you know, if if they can get a million dollars back and they put it to lowering premiums, they're paying eighty percent of the premium. So uh, so they are in much the same position. But but still, we have this problem that uh, you know that that with rebates, we have people who have more medical needs are actually paying more than you know more than you know, more than they should. They're not just, and you know, obviously people have more medical needs. They've already like lost because they have more medical needs. And now they lose again because they're subsidizing overall, overall lower premiums. So again, it's not, it's not like this is easy. You started, you started out by talking about the fact that, you know, one person's, uh, you know, one person's high medical expense is somebody else's revenue. In this instance, one, one person's sort of setting the system right does mean that some other some other people feel more pain from the system. Trade-offs are really tough. And that is our healthcare system. That, that is our healthcare system. You know, the, the one other thing, because you asked me asked me about sort of other things that people have talked about, um, you know, there has been talk about outcomes-based pricing. So if somebody you know, takes a, a million dollar drug and the drug's supposed to do something. If two years later, it's clear the drug didn't do something for that person, that there would be a refund. And um, I think a lot of pharmaceutical companies actually like this conceptually. Um, and, uh, but, but as a practical matter in the real world, it doesn't work very well because people are often, uh, you know, they often, are insured by a different insurer or a different employer two years later when it's clear. It's sometimes hard to define whether a drug really stopped working or whether really didn't stop working. Who should collect the refund? Where should, you know, you know, where, where should it go? These are all really difficult to do. So, and, and realistically, if pharmaceutical companies do that, presumably what they do is if there's a 10% chance something won't work, they should actually put that, put that the premium for that into the cost of the drug in the first place. So for instance, if there's a million dollar drug, there's a 10% chance it wouldn't work. They should charge 1.1 million for it, knowing that, you know, one in 10 times they would have to refund it. So I, I, I mean, I think the real issue with those super expensive drugs is we need the largest possible, uh, um, well, we need lower prices, but we also need the largest possible risk pool so, you know, having an employer with 5,000 employees be at risk, I mean, they, they, they definitely need to buy reinsurance. It's, it's just too small a group and there's too much randomness in the world. So, so we just want to be careful that we're not having businesses fail because they had, they had a sick employee or a sick kid of an employee. That's, that's just not, uh, I mean, we want businesses to succeed or fail based on their business, not based on, uh, based on whether they happen to have somebody who has, you know, has a really expensive disease. Well, this is a topic that I think 
uh, we're hearing Congress discuss, I know we're, we're hearing quite a bit about what to do with PBMs uh, and uh, that, that sector of our healthcare system. And while there was some optimism, we might see some movement by the end of this year. It might not be realistic given some of the, the challenges right now, especially uh, in one chamber of Congress. Uh, but I, I think we might see some... A speakerless chamber, yeah. Right. Uh, but I do think there there might be an avenue or an opening to do something early next year. But it's not going to solve all of our problems. And I feel like we've had such a great discussion over so many points. We could probably have a podcast dedicated to one of these issues or one of these questions. So I, I hope we have a, an opportunity to, to come back and and talk through these issues a bit further. And you know, to, to Jeff's earlier point, the the process for Medicare negotiations is a uh, a long one, at least over the next 12 months. And and these prices don't become effective until 2026. But then there's 2027 and 2028, and the process the process that will play out there. So. Uh, again, I, I do hope we have an opportunity to circle back on this. And uh, and with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode of the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Jeff, thank you for taking the time today. And thank you to the listener for joining us as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our BI research on the Bloomberg Terminal at BI Go. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.